0: And that's what we're going to be talking about today is deliverance from the Lord. The word in Scripture for deliverance is uh, it's used of other terms of salvation, of deliverance, of rescue. But we know something from the New and the Old Testament both that God is our deliverer. Uh, that is one of the great names for the God that we serve as our deliverer. But that deliverance often in Scripture can look very different than what we expect deliverance or rescue, or salvation to look like. We know that as believers that you and I are are saved. That is, we know that, okay, we've got an eternity waiting for us in heaven. Those of us who have believed on Christ, accepted what he's done on the cross for us. But in this life, we often come up with situations and circumstances where we say, God save me, God deliver me, God help me through this circumstance and situation. What does that look like? Because we often have our own preconceived ideas about what that should look like when we're calling on God for help. And God often has very different ideas himself. And so today, um, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 42. So it's quite a quite a few verses there, but it's, um, it's all one story. We get to this point of Acts 5.17. Uh, last week, we talked about the miraculous works, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders uh, that God has done. And he was doing great things, amazing things in the early church through the apostles and through others. People were being healed, people were being brought to the Lord. Incredible stuff was happening, and everybody's happy with this, right? No. The Christians were happy, God was happy, but those who didn't like God's work were not happy. And so we see today uh, that just as God works, uh, Satan always attacks where he sees God's working, and he tries to stop and hinder that work. So I want to ask you to stand with me in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word. Follow along in your copy of Scripture uh, or on the screen. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail. And brought them out. And then he told them, Go to the temple and give your people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from jail for the trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail. The men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple. They're teaching the people captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid that the people would stone them. Then they all brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thutius, who pretended to be somebody great, and about 400 others followed him, but he was killed. And all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got all people to follow him, but he was killed too. And all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus. They let them go. The apostles left the high council, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Father God, we ask that you bless the reading of your word. Thank you for delivering the apostles and for your deliverance, even for us, as we call upon your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So the disciples were doing wondrous, amazing things. And if they were doing them off somewhere, if they had got a little complex out in the out in the woods where nobody knew what was going on, maybe perhaps not too much trouble would have happened. A few people here and there would have wondered out toward what they were doing, and, and some reports would have gotten out there, and some investigations might have been made, but It wouldn't have been that big a deal. But in fact, they did their healing, their teaching, their preaching, their evangelizing. They did this in the very temple itself. And we talked about last week how the temple referred to was not just one little building, but this huge uh, complex, this huge area with all sorts of gates and walls and, and different things. And it covered dozens of acres. And in a place called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Colonnade, they were meeting and they were doing uh, what God had called them to do, speaking the words of life, healing, touching lives. Now, they'd already been warned once before, don't do this. And and Peter had, that first time, he'd responded kind of in a question. He said, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to follow you rather than God? And they go out and even though they've been strongly warned It was Peter and John that first time They keep doing what God had called them to do Teaching, healing, preaching, touching lives And so the chief priests, the Bible says, were filled with jealousy And it's interesting, in your Bible you might have seen righteous indignation The word used there can be translated either as jealousy or uh, as a, a religious zeal And in fact, there might have been a little bit of both going on because these uh, chief priests uh, also uh, and their group called the Sadducees, they were the big dogs of religious life. They were the people that everybody looked to and respected in in the temple in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, these other people are getting all sorts of attention. And it's kind of an in-your-face way because it's right there in the temple. But you could also imagine the the zeal, so to speak, their righteous indignation, which really wasn't righteous at all, but they strongly believed that they were the carriers. They were the custodians of all the good things that should happen. They were the ones that kept up with the temple. And they didn't like anybody messing with their stuff. So they had these apostles arrested. This time, it's not just uh, Peter and John. It's perhaps even all. Most, if not all, of the apostles were arrested. And they put them, the Bible says, in a public prison. In other words, they weren't going to keep this hush-hush. They wanted these apostles disgraced. You know, they wanted it to be in the packet. You know, they wanted somebody to know the next day, ooh, they were in prison. They wanted everybody to know these these are not good folks. Uh, They, you know, they wanted to disgrace them. (laughs) But in fact, the disgrace was reversed because the following morning... Uh, after the angel had come, miraculously let them out of prison, and nobody even knew about it. The guards didn't know. Everybody thought they were still inside. There, when the temple opened at 6 a.m., by the way, the temple kind of had a normal closing. Every so often, you know, around the the Passover, they might have a midnight opening, but most of the time, there were some hours. It opened at 6, and at 6 o'clock sharp, they were in there, and they started preaching to those who went for their early prayers. And so the whole group that had been gathered together, the high council, also called the Sanhedrin, they were they're ready to judge these men. And they said, we don't know where they are. We went and we looked and the guards were still there and the gates were locked and nobody was in there. And they're all kind of standing around going, what's going on? And then another guy runs in all of a sudden and he says, hey, those people that you arrested, they're out there preaching. Now, don't you know that everybody knew, all the people knew, they were arrested yesterday, and they can't even hold on to them for a night. They're already back at it. And so the disgrace fell on the Sadducees rather, uh, rather than on the apostles. And so they sent the temple guard out there once again. And the Bible says that they did it very nicely. They did not use any force or violence. Would you please come with us, sir? We would like for you to attend this meeting. Because they were afraid of the people. The people held them in high regard, high esteem. And they said, we'll be stoned, we'll be killed if we try to jerk them out here violently. And so the apostles went along. And and by the way, this is something to note. That sometimes in Scripture, they would escape. uh, And and they would get away. But never in Scripture do you see Christians violently opposing... um, when they're being taken by the law. The last time that happened basically was Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when he pulled out that sword and he tried to go for the guy's head and he got his ear and Jesus put it back. And Jesus said, no, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so you and I as Christians, sometimes we can escape persecution and that's great if God calls us and makes a way to it. But he never calls us to violently resist persecution by the government. By the way, that's a separate matter uh, from defending yourself in personal defense. But as we are called, sometimes Christians around the world are, are arrested and they're called to stand trial. And violent resistance is never taught in God's Word. So they go along and they show up to this meeting, this high council And the high council has the chief priest, and and it kind of has two sides to it. If you think of like in England where they have a a house of lords and a house of commoners, and these are the aristocrats, and these are supposed to be more of the common people or something like that, they had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, uh, you guys remember them, I think when I was in a kid I was taught how to remember about the Sadducees because see they didn't believe in the resurrection they didn't believe in an afterlife so they were sad you see okay that's how that's how I was taught to remember the Sadducees. They were sad because there wasn't any heaven that they were going to or they just thought it was all about this life here. So the Sadducees they were kind of the the highfalutin the upper class they were part of the high priestly class of people. But there was also this other side And it was made up a lot of the scribes and Pharisees. And they were the more, they were respected. They didn't have an official position, really, most of them. But they were respected by the people for being experts in the law. And so these two bodies, and we'll see later on in Acts, sometimes they even fight against each other. It's kind of a political, two different parties that kind of make up this main body. So they're there. And they hear these apostles, and they they bring them in. They say, we told you. We told you to shut up. Don't keep talking. We told you never to speak in this man's name again. Quit coming in. Fill in all of Jerusalem with this teaching. And this time, Peter speaks up, and he doesn't say, what do you think we ought to do should we obey you rather than uh, God? Because apparently they didn't get it. So last time he, this time he comes out and says, we must obey God rather than human authority, rather than men. We've got to speak because you crucified the Lord and Savior. You put him on the cross, but now he has been risen again. He's ascended to heaven. God has honored him and raised him, and now those who call upon his name will be saved. Now, this message was not received well. Uh, they weren't ready to say, oh, you're right. We, we repent of our sins, and we're so sorry for what we've done. Because they held on, hey, that was a legal trial. That was part of the justice system. It was all legal. It was all, hey, and, and you're trying to claim that we're murderers, that we've murdered this man, Jesus, when in fact we were just upholding the law? And they were so angry, the Bible says they were ready to kill them. Which is very interesting because they didn't have the legal right to kill them. Remember when Jesus died, They had to get the Roman government involved because they could do just about anything up until killing, capital punishment. But they had to get the Romans involved for that. So the Bible doesn't say what they were going to do here, if they were going to go back to Herod or Pilate or somebody and try to get them involved, or if they were just so angry that they were just going to murder them in cold blood and figure out what to do with it later. We don't know. But there was a murderous, a riotous atmosphere in the room, and they were ready to kill the apostles until one of them uh, stood up, and his name was Gamaliel. And he said, uh, let's go into closed session for a minute, here a minute, guys. Let's calm down, kick these guys out of here, everybody, all the public, anybody who's not one of us, get them out, and we've got to talk, seriously. And Gamaliel was so respected that everybody listened, they calmed down for a minute, and they said, okay, we'll listen to you. And they sent the disciples out, and he spoke. And Gamaliel was an expert in the law. He was highly regarded. In fact, he's one of those people that we don't just know about him from the Bible, but he's so famous that if you look at Jewish uh, historical records, we know about Gamaliel from them. He's that famous. He was that big a figure in Jewish life. His grandfather, in fact, was a guy named Hillel. And there was two different schools of thought among the rabbis. There was this other school of thought that said, hey... Somebody's doing wrong, you should be so passionate about what's right that you should just go take them out. You should by threaten them. And in fact, if you have to commit violence against them, whatever it takes to stop wrong from being done, you ought to do it to uphold God's law. That was one side. But his grandfather, Hillel, was on the other side. These were kind of the two big schools of thought among the rabbis. And on the Hillel side, they said, no, no. Listen, you do what's right. You be personally holy. You live at what God wants you to live. And those other people that aren't living right, that's between them and God, and and let's not get involved in that unless we absolutely positively have to. And so Gamaliel followed the teachings of his grandfather. And by the way, Gamaliel was also Saul who became Apostle Paul he was his teacher, teacher, and mentor, although we know that Saul wasn't so calm. (laughs) He didn't go along with all this, but here Gamaliel, who's kind of been trained to be the more peaceful way of doing things, the more you follow God and follow your faith, and when other people do wrong, you can tell them they're wrong, but don't get in their business and try to force them. He stands up and says, guys, look, This isn't the first movement of people claiming there was some Messiah. There was some salvation out there. He said there was a guy named Thutius. We know what happened to him. He popped up. He had followers. Then he died. He went off the scene. All that got dispersed. It was no big deal. And then there was this other guy named Judah. and, and, And he popped up. And everybody was thinking he was a big deal. And then the same thing. It just fizzled out. He said, guys... You're about to murder these men. You're about to put these men to death. And and probably nothing's even going to come of what they're doing. He said, but, you know, if it's not of God, it's going to fail. It's going to go away anyway. But if it is of God, if there is a chance out there at all that these men called apostles of Christ, if they're right... You and I are going to be fighting against God himself. And we don't want to be doing that. And so we just need to step back. We need to let this go. It's either going to fizzle out if it's not of God or if it is of God. We don't need to be fighting it in the first place. And this is a very weird thing because here is a Pharisee. And we're used to reading the Gospels about the Pharisees and how much they oppose Jesus and fight against Jesus and give him trouble. But here is basically a Pharisee standing up for the followers of Jesus, these early apostles. So they all listen to Gamaliel. They respect him. They may all not like what he says, but they listen and they say, Okay, we'll go with you on this one. And they call him back in. Now, they don't give him a slap in the wrist. The Bible says that sometimes it's translated flogging or a beating or a whipping. Uh, This was nothing light. This was the 39 lashes. This was what often killed, Uh, sometimes people were even killed from this. It was that brutal of a beating. And they said, don't speak in this name. They beat them, and they sent them out. And it says the apostles took their beating. They went out rejoicing they could suffer for the name of Jesus. And they kept on preaching in the temple and in homes day in and day out the message of life. What are we to take from this story? What are we to learn from it about deliverance? We learn, first of all, that deliverance is often temporary. When God delivers you from a situation It's not saying that that situation that you're never going to suffer in anymore or even that you're never going to suffer from that same person and that same situation. God may bring you temporal, short-term deliverance. And sometimes that's all we need is just to get a little break. And God took them out of the prison that night. His angel came and brought them out and delivered them. But guess what? The next morning, they were called back. Does that make their deliverance any less real? Absolutely not. They needed to be delivered in that place for God's will to be done. And and so deliverance occurred even short-term, even temporary. Sometimes that deliverance is exactly what we need in our lives and what God needs to do in our lives and through us. Second thing about deliverance is it often looks very different than you and I expect. I'm going to tell you that nobody who had read Luke's first gospel, his first work, that is the gospel of Luke, and read all about the Pharisees and all the ways they had hindered Jesus and the apostles and and accused them of being a demon-possessed or accused them of, of going after their own way, nobody, when they started reading Luke's second work, would have said, okay, Now, we're going to get to about chapter 6, and I bet the Pharisees are going to be the heroes of this story. I mean, they're going to be the good guys, and they're going to deliver the apostles. Nobody would have expected that. But see, God can do whatever he wants to do. He's not limited by your and my expectations, by what we think he's going to do. And so often we miss God's deliverance because we were expecting it in a certain form, to be packaged a certain way, to look a certain way, and and we don't realize God can do whatever he wants. And his deliverance for you might just be the thing that you never expected. The Bible says that God holds the heart of the king in his hand. And you know that not only applies to believing rulers and leaders, but to unbelieving. And you look and look in the Old Testament, whether it's the story of Pharaoh or of many other folks that God dealt with, and ultimately God was in control. God's in control of your life. So when you pray, Lord, save me, Lord, help me, Lord, get me through this, It's fine for you to say, now, God, I would like my help to look like this, and here's what I want, and you can make that request all you want. But remember that it's going to come in God's way and in God's timing. And that's often going to be very different from what we expect. Finally, about deliverance, I want to say this morning that the greatest deliverance that can ever happen occurs inside our hearts. Now that's true of salvation. Initially, when we say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I need you. God, I surrender. I give my life to you. But I'm talking about for, right here, for those of us who are already Christians, who are already followers of Jesus Christ, that one of the greatest things that Jesus can ever do to deliver you is to transform your heart and your mind from a selfish, self-centered, self-pleasing way of life to a God-centered way of life. You see, I think the greatest deliverance in this passage is the deliverance the apostles received as they walked out after that beating. And instead of saying, this is terrible, I'm done, I didn't sign up for this. I'm doing what, the, what God wanted me to do. And look at the terrible things that have happened to me when I'm trying to serve him. Because God had delivered their hearts and their minds from selfish, self-centered ways of thinking. And by the way, those, that's what's natural in our sinful state. All of us think that way. We want to protect ourselves, our comfort, and our safety, and our health. We all want that. But God has to get us to a point where we want what he wants more. We want his glory, his honor to be higher than anything else. And these apostles had gotten to that point. He delivered them from that way of thinking. He'd gotten to a place where they understood the most important thing God is your kingdom. And so they walk out of this place thanking God. God, we got to suffer for your name. Lord, we were honored. By standing up for you, you gave us the strength to not break down, to not recant our faith. You gave us the strength to stand, and we thank you for that. You see, once again, in the eyes of those political, worldly leaders, they thought, we're dishonoring these men. They're going to walk out here barely able to walk, and there's going to be bruises and cuts and scrapes, and they're going to hurt for weeks because of what we've done to them. They are completely and utterly dishonored. Maybe if they weren't already dishonored for being in jail, now they're for sure dishonored by the way that they walk out of this place. But those men wore their scars as badges of honor. God, thank you that we were allowed to be worthy of suffering for your name. Suffering comes in a lot of forms. And sometimes the scars that it produces are emotional rather than physical. Sometimes we aren't physically beaten, but we might be made fun of. We might be looked down upon. We might be teased. We, We might be held out at arm's length from others who think, well, they're just, they're a little bit too much in that whole Christianity thing. We're reminded by God's word that if our hearts and our minds have been transformed by God and what's in his word, then you and I will look at that persecution and say, thank you, Jesus, that we've been found worthy to suffer for your name. And having our hearts changed is the greatest deliverance that you and I could possibly ever have. Would you pray with me today? God, we all like things the way we like them. We want stuff to go our way. We have very definite ideas about how the world should work, what should happen, what, what even you should do, God. We, we all have thoughts like that. And so, Father, I ask for all of us that you would transform our hearts God, as we look to you as our strong deliverer, we would realize that, God, your deliverance is totally up to you. You might physically deliver us from something, but yet we might have to face it again or face another circumstance the next time we turn around. Or, God, you might deliver us in a way that is totally unexpected, that we couldn't have even imagined. God, most of all, we know that you want to deliver us spiritually. You want us to be more like Jesus, whom your word says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Father, that you and I can look at the shame. We can look at the persecution that the world tries to send us. God, we can say that's nothing compared to the glory and honor of serving you. We pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that you would give us faith where we lack faith. Father, where we are filled with fear of man, remove that and put in its place the holy and righteous reverence for you that we ought to have. Help us to be kingdom people that serve you when things are going well and when things are tough. Either way, help us to love you and serve you. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name.